the next two topics are, they have a lot of their popularity has begun with in Christian circles in terms of love languages and boundaries, but it's become so widespread in culture. And we're not the only ones who have authors writing about boundaries, but probably the best-selling book on boundaries is by professing Christians. And then uh, Gary Chapman, who wrote the book on love languages, and now there are all these other love languages books that are spinoffs, uh, has been a Christian pastor. And, and so I want to use both of those as an example. First of all, it's just interesting that now people who aren't Christians know what love languages are, and probably most of them could name several, actually, I saw the, the love languages of Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Acts of service, would you like me to pick up some Chick-fil-A? Quality time, would you like to go to Chick-fil-A with me? Words of affirmation, thank you for bringing me Chick-fil-A. Gifts, I got you a Chick-fil-A. Physical touch, this delicious chicken on your lips. So, <laughs> yeah, that, I'll get to that in a moment, actually. Um, and so it was just, and I think there's something that two topics have in common is they've hit upon some truth in a common grace sense. But then as we evaluate the approach, I'm going to show you there's some problems with it from the standpoint of Scripture. Um, I'll get into that more specifically. But the Love Languages book, I think, originally came out in 1992. They've sold over 10 million copies. It's been translated into 50 languages. There are all these spin-off books of love languages for men and children and love languages devotionals. Um, and I actually had a, a person I'd trained in biblical counseling who shockingly told me that it had really helped her marriage when she read this book and told me to read it. And that's actually when I finally did read it. Um, and... I was surprised in Tim Keller's book on marriage. He actually quotes the book. Um, again, I think there's some common grace wisdom in terms of observing human nature and how we are, but it's missing a lot of biblical truth. So I'm going to lay out, here's what he's saying, and here would be using a biblical grid concerns we would have. So Chapman is saying in the book that romantic relationships usually start off with a great deal of excitement, where... You fall in love. You've seen the Bambi movie. You get Twitter-pated. I'm counseling guy right now. is Twitter-pated and just can't think straight. But then over time, uh, it begins to, to fizzle. That you can't maintain, he claims you can't maintain this level of excitement and infatuation that long. And so reality sets in. Now, I would as having been married 44 years, I think to some degree I'm still in the Twitter-pated stage, so I would already contest him on that point. But then he'll say that in romantic relationships, we need the other person, he will say, to fill our empty love tank. He says, I, want, I need to be loved by someone who chooses to love me and sees in me something worth loving. And, and again, he he says the in love experience temporarily meets that need, but it is inevitable, inevitably a quick fix and has a limited and predictable lifespan. And he quotes some psychologist who says the average lifespan of a romantic obsession is two years. 
And then your eyes are opened and you see the fault of the other person and their quirks. And then you have to deal with the real world of marriage. And they even claim if you maintain that intensity, you couldn't get anything else done anyway. Um, none of this is backed up specifically by Scripture, but there's you know, some people would, by observation um, would say that's so. And then over time, uh, when the love tank isn't filled or the love tank empties, then bad things can happen. Uh, this would explain why people get divorced. This would explain why people have affairs outside of marriage. Uh, even some of the better Christian books about marriage talk about kind of the reality. Uh, Paul David Tripp's book, So What Did You Expect? It's, you know, that's kind of a funny title for a marriage book. And you know, Dave Harvey's When Sinners Say I Do. Um, and so you know, the idea is that, okay, we need to find some way to help couples. By the way, I'm speaking what Chapman says, not what I say. I'll get to what I say as we go. We need to find some way to help couples fill one another's emotional love tanks. And given that the need to feel loved is central to human nature, um, and then I guess maybe like when you go to the gas station and there are like five different options for what you put into your car. So he would say different people need different stuff put into their love tank. Uh, and he would say that just as we have a primary language we speak, that we have a primary emotional language, a primary love language, which is what they most need about in marriage. And so I've already rattled through them on the Chick-fil-A example, but you know, we talked last night about words of affirmation, acknowledging uh, you know, the appreciation to the person, quality time, uh, to spend lots of time together, put away your phone, turn off the television, and engage. And there have been times when Caroline has said, will you put away that phone? And, you know, I want to talk to you. This is important. Um, and so another would be gifts. Uh, we've been counseling a, a pastor and his wife who've had some pretty serious problems in their marriage. And she had an item she really wanted. And he told me he bought it. It was very expensive. Bought it for her. And right now she's happier than I've ever seen her. I've warned both of them, I think the buzz is going to wear off of the gift, but I think gifts certainly are what she yearns for. Um, acts of service. Uh, Caroline counseling a lot of women, something that really frustrates some women is they'll, you know, somebody gave the example, we've got blue jobs and pink jobs at home, and this is what the women, it, it may sound sexist, but many families are operating that way. And so the wife will say, this thing is broken. And the husband said, I will take care of it. Now, translation from the husband is, someday I'll get around to this. <laughs> the wife is, when she says this is a problem, is essentially saying, I'll know how much you love me by how soon you get to this. <laughs> um, and there are some women who are really kind of miserable because they feel like the husband isn't doing the stuff she's hoping he will do and take care of things. And there's a lot of that. And then physical touch. And physical touch, obviously for many people it's sex. But physical touch, I think even you know, means more than that. People talk about how babies you know, need to be held and they flourish with physical connection. And uh, the, the friend who pointed out why I should read this book said that she realized that was hers and it wasn't 
having lots of sex with her husband. It was being cuddled and held and to feel close. And, um, and then, you know, in conflict, pulling away is a feeling of, of rejection. Um, and so that's the description. And, you know, how can you know what your spouse's love language is? And you've got in your notes some of the things that Chapman will say is, one is you observe what they want to do for you and other people. And maybe I've known people like they're just all about giving gifts and they're always giving gifts to people and you can't keep up with them. And what you realize is that that probably expresses what they're hoping other people will do for them or someone who's very physically affectionate probably wants that. And his point would be that if you're constantly giving gifts to the person who's yearning for acts of service, the gifts aren't filling the tank. It's the wrong grade of gasoline or whatever. Um, and so, again, you watch what they do. Another would be you ask what the, you see what they ask for. Sometimes they're that open, or uh, you see what they complain about. Well, you never this. Okay, that probably is an indication. He says my spouse's criticisms about my behavior provide me with the clearest clue to her primary love language. Um, then he also points out that it's harder to discern the love language of a person whose tank is full meaning if they're not complaining, <laughs> uh, just I know I feel love. Now, you also can misuse your knowledge of your spouse's love language. Boy, I think there's some common grace wisdom in lots of this. I'll get to the problems. But um, if you know that your spouse yearns for physical touch and you want to punish them because you're upset with them, well, then you pull away. And that hurt, it hits them where it hurts or you don't spend time with them. And then he actually has a test where you fill out, you know, rate yourself, rate your spouse one to ten. Uh, the best part of the book is a chapter entitled Loving the Unlovely. And he uses Luke 6, 27, where we're told to love our enemies. And it's really in contrast to a lot of the rest of the book. But he's saying when you don't feel love, you choose love. And this to me, yeah, like, yeah, this is much better. Um... He says, read Jesus' sermon on loving your enemies, loving those who use you. Then ask God to help you to practice the teachings of Jesus. Um, there's actually one example he gives that probably if it were being written today wouldn't be get past the publisher where a wife is ex extraordinarily affectionate towards her husband as a means of helping him and making things better and showing grace. And of course, when you write the book, it always works. Um, but even then, there can be a risk of giving in order to get. Like, I'll be affectionate to you so that you'll fix the broken things or vice versa. Uh, it has a lot in common, if you're familiar with Love and Respect uh, by Eggerts, where um, you know, understanding what your spouse needs it does really have a lot to do with marital happiness. But also, it has some of the same weaknesses. And I'm going to get to this with boundaries as well. It's just so horizontal. It's just so much about me or us. And also, it's just how do I get what I want as there are higher goals than that. And you, you know, I've titled mine a kind critique. If you want to hear a, a critique that's harsher than mine, David Pallison wrote a critique of this in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, and it's scathing. I'm going to quote it a couple times. Um, so again, trying to be kind and then to evaluate it biblically 
uh, you know, he's not trying to write a specific biblical counseling book. I don't think he's even appealing only to Christians. Uh, he makes some kind of references to Bible verses now and then to kind of back up his point. But he, he doesn't start with Scripture, and I think Boundaries book will even be worse, but in terms of he's not looking at the Bible comprehensively as a book about redemption and salvation. Where he does use it, it's kind of here's some practical wisdom that would work for anybody on a horizontal level. Uh, I think he does have some true insights that, you know, First Peter 3, 7 says, husbands, live with your wives according to understanding. And to give like example back rubs, okay? If my wife is going to rub my back, I want her to grind in because I have a sore back and I want that. Now, if I do that to her, she'll scream. She wants this you know, light little version of a background. So I need to understand the differences. And all the differences he's describing are real. That, you know, if, it, it is true that if your wife yearns more than anything else to just spend lots of quality time with you, buying her a bunch of stuff isn't going to solve it. Actually, one of my cases I'm dealing with as well with a pastor and his wife is he keeps buying her stuff and she's got a nice house and a nice car. What's she complaining about? Well, she's complaining because she doesn't have you. Uh, and so, you know, again, there, there's some truth. And I think it could help some couples, what I would call a common grace level, is it's describing the problem, but it's, its explanation, I think, is faulty because it's not really... The word sin, I had a student who did a search, and the one time it's used, it's not used really in a biblical way. Uh, so sin isn't seen as primarily the problem. And then prescription. So de- my general statement about things that try to either psychology or that which tries to integrate psychology and the Bible is they tend to be good at describing a problem and bad at explaining the problem and even worse at solving the problem uh, because they're not giving a biblical interpretation or biblical solutions. I think, again, some couples could be helped um, and it's kind of they have a pretty good marriage and they want to have a better marriage. And there are unbelievers who have relatively harmonious marriages. Uh, and this could help you know, understand each other. It's kind of like how to win friends and influence people. Pallison writes, uh, five love languages replaces naked self-interest with civilized self-interest. <laughs> I give hoping to get, but the music still plays in the key of get. And then anything that's good in this book is already in scripture and it's in the context of redemption. I mean, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule, Matthew 7, 12. Already said, husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. So yes, I need to study my wife and treat her the way she wants to be treated, not the way I want to be treated. And then we should listen to each other. Proverbs 20, verse 5 is the thought of a man is like a deep well and a person of understanding draws it out. Philippians 2, we should consider others more important than ourselves. Uh, you know, James 1, we're supposed to, 19, we're to be quick to listen. Uh, and so, yes, we should try to understand each other and make their concerns and their needs more important to us than our own. Uh, it's also true, the Bible says, that when we don't get what we want, we're tempted to be angry and wreck relationships. In James 4, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your desires, the wage war in your members. You desire and do not get, and so you kill. That you know, we that's kill like Matthew five is you get angry. You're you know, that w- people who want something and it could be I want affection, I want gifts, I want whatever. 
you know, we don't get it apart from the Spirit working in us, then we lash out at those who don't give us what we want. Now, that's, that's not a positive thing. That's a sinful thing, but it's a reality. And then there are biblical examples of each of the so-called love languages. Words of affirmation we talked about last night in Proverbs 31. Her husband rises and blesses her and says, many women have done well, but you surpass them all. Okay, that's, you know, husbands are called to follow the example of that husband in Proverbs 31, and praise means a lot to a wife. And, you know, quality time. You know, Paul says, I'm eager to come to Rome to preach the gospel to you. I want to be with you, not just sending you letters. And, you know, the, the physical presence, uh, gifts. Philippians 4, Paul thanks the church in Philippi for participating in his work by giving a generous gift to him while he's in prison. And uh, Proverbs talks about the, the power of gifts uh, in relationship. And again, it's more of an observation than encouraging you to do it necessarily. Um, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men, Proverbs 18, 16. Uh, God is the giver of every good gift, James 1 says. Acts of service. In John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet and says we're to do likewise. Philippians 2, as we consider others more important than ourselves, we're to be servants as Christ is servant. And even touch. Greet one another with a <laughs> holy kiss. Uh, I mean, embracing one another. By the way, that's happened to me a couple times. In Spain, I nearly jumped out of my skin. This lady started kissing my cheeks and one time I baptized an Arab guy when I was in Saudi Arabia and he had kind of the Yasser Arafat beard thing and he starts kissing me when he comes up out of the water. Not on the lips, but on the cheeks. But it, I, I wasn't ready for that culturally. Um, <laughs> 1 Corinthians 7 says how a husband and wife should come together sexually on a regular basis and how important that is for bonding them and keeping them from temptation. So, I mean, the Bible does acknowledge these aspects of human nature. Now, what I want to do, and this is a grid you could use for other things. I have, and it's in your notes this way, uh, last night, for those of you there, I had six things that begin with L. This is like the second of the three times I've used alliteration. I have five things that begin with A. And this is something that, broadly speaking, I teach in class to contrast biblical counseling as opposed to psychology and that which tries to integrate psychology and the Bible. And you just to evaluate, I'm, I'm using it specifically to evaluate this, but it's also something as a generalization that um, I think is good to evaluate anything. And so the first day is authority. Uh, you know, the authority of the Love Languages book is actually pop psychology. There's not even really research in the book. It's just kind of human observation. Uh, it certainly isn't scripture. He has anecdotal stories. And there are some psychologists like the Gottmans who claim to do all this research that backs up their findings. But from his standpoint, it's just, you know, he's observing these things and it has the ring of truth. Um, our authority is the word of God. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Uh, one of my favorite passages about why we do biblical counseling is Psalm 19. The first half of the psalm tells the glory of God in his creation. But in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And when it say, 
you can't say that about Freud, Rogers, Jung, Maslow, or Chapman. <laughs> you know, the Bible alone regenerates and gives life. It revives. It gives perfect wisdom. It is incomparable. And so our authority is the Scriptures. And yeah, the Scripture does say that marriage, which is the main topic of Chapman's book, is, is designed to meet certain human needs and can be a, a blessing. But you know, when Chapman does re- refer to Scripture, it's kind of in a vague way. And some of you heard the expression like moralistic, therapeutic deism, <laughs> where when the Bible is used, it's kind of used human wisdom so you can be more successful in life and use God to meet your goals rather than living for the glory of God in light of redemption. Uh, like in, you know, lots of people would say there's good wisdom in Proverbs. There are things the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and other people that are similar. Work hard, you make more money. Things like that. Here's all to get along with people. But the Proverbs of the Bible are the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we do what, we act wisely in light of our covenant relationship with God, not just for pragmatic reasons. And so, you know, when he was like Solomon, author of the ancient Hebrew wisdom literature, wrote, the tongue has the power of life and death. It's right after a Mark Twain quote. Um, And so, anyway, that's authority. Our authority is the Word of God. And then other psychologists can its research or, anyway, aim. Again, according to the Bible, what is our aim for our lives and when we counsel other people? Like, Like the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 2 Corinthians 5.9, our aim is to whether present or absent, meaning alive or dead, our aim is to be pleasing to Him. 1 Corinthians 10.31, you know, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Our goal, biblically, is to honor and glorify God. Whereas in Chapman's book, the primary focus is to have a happy marriage. Now, by the way, that's a good secondary goal. I'm not against that goal. But life is all about not glorifying God, but feeling loved. I, here's a quote. I need to be loved by someone who chooses to love me, who sees me as someone worth loving. That is not a God-centered approach to the aim of life and marriage. My sense of self-worth, he writes, is fed by the fact my spouse loves me. After all, if she loves me, I must be worth loving. Does the Bible tell you that you're worth loving? <laughs> While we were yet sinners and enemies of God, you know, he says, her love builds my self-esteem. Um, and so it can lead to a selfish focus that I need to get my love tank filled. And then, like, let's say that you have a need, great need for relational connection. You married someone on the autism spectrum. And they just don't connect that way. And we have a lot of counseling cases where you have, like, a very emotional wife who pours out her heart and a husband who's just kind of Mr. Logic and he doesn't express himself that way. Well, he can work at living with his wife in an understanding way. He can, he can move the needle a bit, but he's never going to become like she is. And she may never become like what she thinks she needs or wants. So what do you do? Well, do you say, I better find somebody else who can speak my language? Or to the glory of God, to we seek to learn to love each other with our sins and weaknesses. Pallison writes, it is practical, immoral wisdom, manipulation or pandering or both when it comes to the whole story, which is the other side. Okay, I will fill her tank, so she will fill my tank. By the way, we all do this anyway. We don't need encouragement. <laughs> we need redirection. 
Um, Pallison says, his explanation of what speaking another's love language does, his ultimate goal in marriage and evaluation of the significance of language, love languages are deplorable. Some people are called by God to glorify him in hard marriages, to love people who aren't worthy of being loved, and pray that God would use that, first of all, that they would love God and then that they would love in marriage. So again, aim, totally different. Anthropology, uh, who is man? Now, in typical secular psychology, they see us as being mere physical beings who have evolved over time. I just got done written, listening to kind of a secular psychology book about men and women and the differences between them and keep talking about how we've evolved and this is how we became and it just, you know, there's such blindness to it. Yeah, just all by chance. It's ridiculous. Um, but, and then also we're not merely physical beings. We have a soul. You know, God breathed life into the man. First, 1 Corinthians 5a, to be absent from the bodies, to be present from the Lord. We're not merely physical beings. And, and you know, again, Chapman, the desire for romantic love in marriage is deeply rooted in our psychological makeup. Psychologists have concluded the need to feel love that is a primary human emotional need. Another quote, inside every child is an emotional love tank waiting to be filled with love. Pallison complains, uh, the five love languages model fails the class Human Nature 101. Like all secular interpretations of human psychology, even when lightly Christianized, it makes some good observations and offers some half-decent advice of the sort of self-effort that sometimes follows, but it doesn't really understand human psychology. Fallenness not only brings ignorance about how best to love others, it brings a perverse unwillingness and inability to love. It ingrains the perception of our lusts are in fact needs, empty places inside where others have disappointed us. These empty emotional tanks construct is congenial to our fallen instincts, not transformative. And that's going to kind of get to the ailment, which is the next one. What's wrong with us isn't just that we're not getting our needs met, but what's wrong with us is we're sinners. And Pallison goes through the five love languages. I love it when the crowds cheers and flatters. I love it when everything, people drop everything and focus on me. I love it when you're my sugar daddy, giving me lots of stuff. I feel loved when you do exactly what I want and make no demands of me. I feel loved when you go along with my sexual fantasies and you make me feel like the most special uh, person in the world. He says each of the five love languages can speak what he calls a dark and greedy growl, a black hole of insatiable demand. And again, what do we see? Marriage, too. Marriage is a covenant before God in which we seek primarily to glorify God and then to love the other person as God has loved us. We're not conditional or tank being filled. And then the ailment, uh, and this is the big, a really big thing, is that as he looks in the book, basically the ailment is we just don't understand each other well enough. And you know, in marriage, if we don't feel loved, our differences are magnified, we're fighting for self-worth. Then here's one for parents. He says, much of the misbehavior of children is motivated by the cravings of an empty love tank. When a child feels loved, he will develop normally. But when the love tank is empty, the child will misbehave. Their misbehavior was a misguided search for the love they could not feel. Is that what's the problem with your children? That's not a biblical view, is it? Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. Um, and then with couples, could it be 
the deep inside hurting couples exists an emotional love tank with its gauge on empty? Could the misbehavior, withdrawal, harsh words, and critical spirit be because of an empty tank? The Bible says, you know, the problem is we are sinners and we're prone to the flesh. We're prone to selfishness, anger, self-righteousness, revenge, and bitterness. Allison writes, to really love, you need to see their itch as idolatrous and awaken them to a far more serious itch, the need for God. Love languages will never teach you to love at this deeper level. Uh, Pallison says, the love languages pander to the very problem that most need solving. If you were loved your spouse and your spouse did better, would your problems be fundamentally solved? Does having an empty love tank cause you to mistreat others? If love tanks could get filled all around, would that really produce the kingdom of relational sweetness and light? Is the principle that Gentiles love those who love them really the key principle for maintaining marital success and happiness? No. And in the book, he actually talks about adultery. Chapman does. Thousands of husbands and wives have been there, emotionally empty, wanting to do the right things, not wanting to hurt anybody, but being pushed by their emotional needs to seek love outside of marriage. This, you can see, it, it portrays the adulterer as a victim. I did it because my wife didn't speak my language. There's no call to repent. Uh, there's no sense of a need for Christ as a substitute to take the death sentence for the crimes we've committed. And then the idea, of, again, again, Chapman says, if all goes well and emotional needs are met, children develop into responsible adults. Pellison said, this is a psychologist's dream. It's not a Christian hope. And just understanding your spouse is not going to enable you to love them well because you're a sinner. Um, and then we get to the answer, which is the fifth A. And that is, you know, what is the solution to the problem raised? Again, the answer, the key to everything is to understand your spouse's love languages as opposed to Scripture, which says the answer is the gospel. What I need is a new nature. Whoever's in Christ is a new creation. What I need is the filling of the Holy Spirit that enables me, even with heat, as Jake said, when the heat of my spouse's sin and my children's sin and not getting the things I want comes upon me, I can still bear the fruit of the Spirit because I'm united to Christ. Um, so again, Chapman writes, could the misbehavior... Withdrawal, harsh words, and critical spirit occur because of that empty tank. If we could find a way to fill it, could the marriage be reborn? Could it be the tank that makes the marriages work? No. <laughs> it's my answer. The answer biblically. Um, again, when your spouse's emotional love tank is full and he feels secure in your love, the whole world looks bright and your spouse will move out to reach, move on to reach his highest potential in life. The Bible says we're sinners. And it's not just horizontal. It's The big problem is vertical. I am selfish, angry. I'm mean when I don't get the things I want because I am a sinner. And I need forgiveness from God. When I mistreat my wife because she didn't meet all my needs that I thought were needs or whatever my desires, that's more a sin against God than it even is a sin against her. And the answer isn't for her to figure out how to fill my love tank. The answer is for me to repent and to show grace. Um, to get the log out of my eye. First before God and then before her. And yes, there can be times when then you, you go and you confront one another. We talked about that last night as well. But 
ultimately, the Bible says it's Christ who fills your love tank. Uh, last night I referenced Jeremiah uh, 17, verses 5 to 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Now, pause there for a moment. He's, he's using a picture. You've got this plant, but the plant finds itself in a desert where it's not raining. And what's the plant going to do? It's going to shrivel up and die. And the analogy would be, again, this person isn't getting their love language spoken. They're not getting their tank filled. So they're shriveling up. And I see people all the time who are shriveling up. What's the answer? Well, just change my spouse so that he'll do the things I want or she'll do the things I want, then I'll be okay. Well, the Bible says if you're putting your hope there, you're cursed. Because even in the best of marriages, your spouse is going to let you down. Um, and then verse 7, instead, blessed is the man who trusts the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by the stream. He will not fear when heat comes, but its leaves will be green and will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. And when we were living in San Diego, we actually had kind of a, a picture of this. We had a desert just over the mountains from us. I'd take our family there sometime. There'd be a hike where you'd start at a visitor center and you'd just be walking through just parched land, scrubby little brush. And it was called the Palm Canyon hike in Enzo Borrego. And you would see after a while, off in the distance, this little patch of green. And as you would walk towards the green, uh, you would see palm trees with fruit on them. And you would see all kinds of things growing. Guess what? There was a wadi. There was an oasis. We would, you know, some people would think of it as. And there was a, a spring bubbling up. And you had this small pond or lake. And right there, even in the desert, you have plants that are flourishing. And it, it's kind of a visual picture. If, if you are expecting your spouse to meet your ultimate needs, you're like the bush in the desert. And you could spend your whole life saying, I wish it would rain, I wish it would rain, I wish... By the way, sometimes it does rain in the desert, but not all the time. <laughs> There's only one place you're ultimately safe. And it's not, I must have my spouse meet my ultimate needs. It's, I must have Christ meet my ultimate needs. And then when there's a drought and my love tank isn't getting filled, then I'm strengthened in him and I can, I'm not going to wilt and I'm, I can even bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, I would link that too. Um, and so, again, Chapman, when his wife speaks his primary love language and his emotional love tank is full and he speaks her primary language and emotion, his emotional, her emotional love tank is full, then the sexual aspect of the relationship will take care of itself. Pallison complains, this is just, his advice is so doable. A bit of education, a bit of self-effort are all that's needed for life to sing. The marriages in his book don't need Jesus' blood, sweat, and tears. The people don't need help and power from outside themselves, even to stumble in the right direction. They don't need Jesus to come back because they consider the current fixing adequate. His couples need have no need of understanding of repentance and forgiveness for what they long for and live for. Um, 
and you know, even when he uses examples of people committing adultery and then the other spouse realizes, well, I'd have just done a better job meeting the love tank. Again, this is written 40 years ago. Can't get by with it now. <laughs> but you know, if I'd just been better, then this wouldn't have happened. By the way, that's not entirely devoid of truth. You know, I've seen women commit adultery because their husbands neglect them. But that's not an excuse. So I guess I shouldn't say it because. That was an influence. But they could have turned to the Lord instead of turning to an idol that then was so destructive. Pallison says, Jesus couples live in a far more desperate world. Merciful bloodshed and new creation are needed to fix what is really wrong with marriages. They seek forgiveness and they forgive and they live for God, not forgetting what they want. The love of Christ speaks a love language. Mercy to hellishly self-centered people that no person can hear or understand unless God gives ears to hear. And so it's grace that enables you to love your spouse and serve your spouse when they don't deserve it. Now, to the credit of Chapman, he does at the end of the book make a statement like that. I think it's kind of in tension with everything else he wrote. He says, the ability to love, especially when your spouse is not loving you, may seem impossible for some. Such a love such love may require us to draw upon our spiritual resources. Even then, that's kind of a lame way of describing it. So, other concerns. Uh, I think the book probably has significant limitations on who it could help. Um, you know, he makes it sound like understanding your love's language and being understood in your love language, your, understanding your spouse's love language, being understood... It's like the silver bullet that will solve all problems. Now, interestingly, we get to boundaries. They do the same thing. You know, the, here is the key is knowing their love language. Boundaries, the key is setting boundaries. All problems will be solved by this one thing. Um, and then I think in some marriages that are doing fairly well, it can be helpful to think about what does my spouse really desire and how can I better meet those needs or what do I really want and how can I express that to my spouse? But if that's already assuming you're kind of on each other's side, um, it's, not, it's not going to solve a broken marriage problem. Uh, there needs to be repentance. He doesn't adequately account for human sinfulness and the damage it does to marriage. Pallison says he treats desires as givens, as love languages to be spoken in order to fill empty love tanks. He never deals with the fact that people can desire evil, immorality, violence, stubborn willfulness. These don't come from empty places in good people. He never deals with the fact that desires for good things can be evil desires in God's analysis. It can be a lust language. And again, marriages in which there is bitterness and sinful patterns over a long time, I don't think it's going to help. Um, it needs the gospel. It needs get the log out of your own eye, repent of your own sin, be humbled before God, see yourself as chief of sinners, repent before your spouse, and then be ready to forgive them. Having been forgiven, you can forgive. Um, yes, sometimes what your spouse is complaining about uh, is you should try to help them, but sometimes it's also a reflection of their own sin. We, we can want things too much. Uh, another thing is that I think this is something I generally don't like about Enneagram and personality tests. I think people like to get pegged like, the, you know, okay, I'm a 
whatever the numbers are on Enneagram, or I'm of this, or I'm of that, or back in the day it was in my phlegmatic, choleric, whatever, all those things. And the, some of you are familiar with that from the uh, personality traits back with Tim LaHaye decades ago. Um, I guess it would have been astrology before that. But that what one desires now may not be what one desires tomorrow. Um, my C- Caroline says she is multilingual. She wants them all. <laughs> um, and then also just focusing upon one's own love language can engender discontentment, bitterness, and even divorce or adultery. So we look to Jesus to meet our ultimate need. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you look to your spouse to do for you what only Jesus can do, you're going to have problems. So we can appreciate some common grace insight, describing a problem, describing we are different ways, but the Word of God offers so much more. Um, you know, Pallison just says that this book, the kind of things this book does is replicate in every Psychology 101 textbook in each of the personality theories, theories and all of the self-help books. The actual human condition is neither faced nor addressed. And you know, what we need is the person in the work of Jesus and He alone can make us people of grace, give us the security we lack. And he says, grow fluent in the love of Christ. Speaking that language.